Well, good morning to you. It's 9.30. We're ready to begin our uh, Bible study this morning. It's good to see everyone here uh, in person. And for those online, we're, we're glad that you're here with us as well. Uh, as you know, we've been moving through a study of the life and writings of uh, our brother Paul. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about two letters that he's written, uh, Ephesians and Colossians, two letters that are, are linked uh, together. Uh, we've just got a, a few more weeks up ahead. Um, so we've got Philippians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus still remaining. Uh, and maybe we need to kind of do a little bit of a, a wrap-up at the end of his, his life as well. Uh, so maybe three or four more weeks, and then uh, we'll uh, see what's next. Uh, but like I said, for, for today, uh, the letters to the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae. Uh, last week, uh, we, we talked about Paul in prison somewhere. Uh, we, we had a couple different ideas of where he may have been in prison. Uh, wherever he's in prison, he has some freedom to write because he writes these four prison letters. Uh, so it's not like he's got his uh, hands chained together probably. He's, he's more like under house arrest, uh, which is, is the picture we see at the end of Acts in Rome uh, that he he does have some freedom to, for people to visit him uh, and would be able to perhaps even write some letters. Uh, last week, we also talked about this one of these letters, uh, the shortest one. We kind of got it out of the way first. Uh, the letter called Philemon. Uh, Philemon is a Christian slave owner, uh, and Paul writes him a letter about this runaway slave, Onesimus. Uh, we talked about how last week, uh, even though he's not, he doesn't talk about... Uh, the, the gospel message of Christ reconciling the world to himself in the letter of Philemon. Uh, this is a letter where Paul is, is acting out uh, his obedience to Christ by reconciling uh, Philemon to this person who has done him wrong, uh, that he is taking Onesimus's debts on himself uh, and telling Philemon to welcome him back not as a slave, but as a brother. Uh, so this reconciliation being brought into the family uh, is the message that uh, Paul has been talking about in so many of his letters of what Jesus did. And here we see uh, this is what uh, Christians also are doing as they follow Jesus. Um, we, we had the question last week about where was Paul in prison? And I told you there's two main theories for it. Uh, either in Ephesus or in Rome. Uh, if it was in Ephesus, this would have been on the third journey. Uh, talked about in Acts 19 is when Paul is in Ephesus. Uh, lots of people like this because it, it puts him close to where this is all happening. Obviously, uh, he's in Ephesus. He could write a letter to the Christians in Ephesus. Colossae's nearby. Philippi's nearby. Uh, so that, and with people traveling, especially in these letters, uh, some people think, well, this is where he was. Uh, the problem is Acts 19 doesn't talk about Paul being in prison. Uh, so uh, we have to, to consider that. Uh, the other option, and it's the option I, I favor as well, uh, is that Paul is in Rome. Uh, this would have been at the end of the book of Acts, after his appeal to Caesar, where he spends two years in, under house arrest in Rome. Uh, so I, I feel like this... This does fit with the Acts narrative where we know he's in prison. Uh, we don't have to speculate on being 
in prison somewhere. We, we know he was in prison. Uh, and this also fits with the, the traditional uh, understanding of the, the sequence of Paul's life as well. Uh, so that's, that's what I favor, but like I said, lots of uh, intelligent people prefer Ephesus, uh, but those are the, the two main options that people talk about. So you can see, you know, if you look at it in a map, uh, Rome would be quite far away for this runaway slave. Uh, Ephesus would be a lot closer, uh, but uh, we, we do know he was in prison in Rome as well. The, these three of these prison letters uh, we, we see are very closely linked, and we see all these ties in between them. And actually, Philippians is the one that appears to be the, the odd one, uh, and in our Bibles, the, the sequence, it's got kind of wedged in between Ephesians and Colossians, uh, but Ephesians and Colossians are actually have some close ties, and Colossians and Philemon have some close ties. So it seems, I think, that all three of these letters were sent at the same time, uh, that Paul writes all three of them and sends them off uh, to their respective destinations. So here's why I think that. First of all, uh, Philemon and Colossians have the, the same list of, of people uh, who are greeting the recipients. Uh, so we have Epaphras, we're going to talk about him more in a little bit, Aristarchus, Mark, Luke, and Demas. They're all mentioned in both letters, uh, Philemon and Colossians. Uh, both letters also mention this Archippus, uh, who is in Colossae, uh, and it appears maybe is actually Philemon's son in the way he's greeted in the letter to Philemon. Uh, so lots of shared names uh, in these two letters. But maybe the most important shared name is in Colossians. Uh, when the Colossians receive this letter from Tychicus, uh, Paul says, you know, Tychicus is coming with this guy named Onesimus, who are our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. Uh, so this tells us Onesimus is from Colossae. And so this, you know, I think ties everything together really perfectly. That tells us Philemon is a Christian who lives in Colossae uh, because Onesimus is from Colossae. Uh, and so uh, we have two guys traveling together. Uh, Onesimus has his letter to his master Philemon, uh, and this other guy, Tychicus, has this letter uh, addressed to the, the church at large in Colossae. So Philemon and, Col and Colossians uh, have lots of, of connections between them. And likewise, uh, Colossians and Ephesians have lots of uh, ties together as well. So first of all, they both are delivered by this guy named Tychicus. Uh, and so I, I think if Paul is all the way in Rome, uh, he's got two letters to send uh, to these two places that are actually relatively close to each other. You send them both with this same trusted uh, friend of yours. Uh, so they're, they're both delivered by Tychicus. Uh, and uh, you actually read through the letters, and there's lots of, of similar ideas in both Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, for, first thing is this, they both talk about this mystery, uh, this idea that God is, is reconciling the Gentiles. And just like a, a good mystery novel, uh, this is not something that should be a complete surprise. Uh, that, it, you know, when this is revealed you see this was God's idea all along. There were, there were these, it was this message all throughout the Old Testament. That was God's uh, intent, was to bless 
all nations. Uh, but it caught people by surprise, uh, despite those uh, hints and that message being there all along. Uh, and so that's what, what one of Paul's messages is, uh, that uh, so many of the Jews are, are surprised that this was God's intent. And here these Christians say, no, look, this, you read the promise to Abraham. You read the book of Isaiah. You see this was God's plan all along to, to reveal this. Uh, both Colossians and Ephesians talk about uh, Christ as the head and the church as the body. So it's shared language there. Uh, and they both have this uh, list of instructions for the way Christian households ought to be. Uh, so uh, instructions for husbands and wives, for parents and children, for slaves and owners. And very similar uh, message in each of these. So I think he's writing these at the same time. And, and just like, you know, it's a, a classic uh, preacher-teacher trick. Uh, if you have two different audiences, you can tell them the same message if it's a good message that they both need to hear. Uh, so he's telling both of them, you know, similar things some, and some different things as well. Uh, but I think this is coming out at a similar time uh, of his thought. And so what we see, Colossians ties uh, both Philemon and, and Ephesians all together uh, with these shared ideas and shared references. Uh, so you know, I can imagine, you know, Paul is in Rome. Uh, it's a long journey for someone to make. Uh, and he wants Onesimus to go back to Colossae, uh, but he also has these, these other uh, letters he would like uh, delivered to these churches that he knows. Uh, so he sends Tychicus with Onesimus uh, to make this journey. Now, maybe they were already going to go there anyway, uh, and they uh, drop off a letter in Ephesus and then continue on inland to the city of Colossae, deliver the letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon. That's what I think is going on. So all three letters coming together. But actually, you know, maybe, maybe there are four letters. Uh, we read in Colossians, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. I, I looked in my Bible this morning. I did not see the letter to the Laodiceans. I don't know, you, you guys just in Laodicea, right? Did you see any letters laying around? Don't, no? Uh, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't have this letter uh, to, the, to Laodicea. Well, perhaps, uh, you know, maybe it was lost, um, which seems a little strange to me because uh, people are recognizing that these letters are valuable. Uh, they recognize even this personal letter to Philemon is worth keeping, uh, it, seems, you know, it seems unlikely they would just trash this letter uh, to Laodicea. Um, but, you know, accidents happen. Um, there's, you know, earthquakes and fires, and even things that are valuable to you uh, don't always survive. Uh, and in which, if that's the case, then I, I'm confident that uh, whatever uh, message that was in there uh, is not something that uh, is going to be crucial for us as Christians to know. Uh, that our, our Christian life is somehow incomplete uh, because we, did, we lost this teaching uh, to Laodicea. I don't think that's the case. Uh, the second idea would be that, that we actually do have the letter to Laodicea, uh, and maybe it's actually what we call Ephesians. 
Now, the, the idea here is, uh, you know, Ephesians is actually a very gen- kind of general letter. It doesn't mention a lot of specifics, people. Uh, it's not responding to any situation. Uh, and so it seems perhaps that, that Paul intended this letter to Ephesus uh, to be more of a circular letter. It's something that, that goes to lots of places, uh, starting with the, the, the main city in Ephesus. Uh, it's something that everybody can benefit from. And so he, he writes it so that it, it can you know, be delivered to lots of places. And so perhaps uh, he, he knows that letter has, will have made it to Laodicea by the time uh, the Colossian letter reaches Colossae, and they can swap at that point. Uh, so you know, that's another idea. It is, uh, you know, we, we don't have anything about this original letter, uh, but at a later point, uh, this a letter called the Letter to Laodiceans does start popping up. This is hundreds of years later, uh, which tells me I, I'm pretty doubtful of anything about it. Uh, and people are reading this letter to the Laodiceans. It's, it's not, not in Greek, like Paul's other letters. It's actually in Latin, which is a much later kind of Christian language. Uh, but the, the writer Jerome uh, is a church scholar, uh, lived in the 300s and 400s. He, he lists out the letters of Paul, uh, nine letters to seven churches, Romans, two to Corinthians, you know, so on. This is actually, it matches uh, the, the order and everything that we have in our Bibles. These, these are the letters that he uh, verif- thinks, you know, he, he believes are tr- accurate uh, in the, the fourth century. Uh, he also mentions, you know, the letter which is called Hebrews is not considered his, Paul's, on account of its difference from the others in style and language. It's reckoned by Tertullian to be the work of Barnabas, or according to others, to be by Luke the Evangelist or Clement, and it goes on about that. Uh, so, yeah, actually, we, we need to talk about this sometime, too, is this, uh, did Paul write Hebrews? It doesn't have any, any name on it, and Paul's other letters all have his name on it. Uh, so some people do believe that uh, Hebrews is written by Paul. Uh, I don't, and Jerome is on my side on this. Uh, but Jerome also mentions some people also read one to the Laodiceans, but it's rejected by everyone, uh, which I think uh, makes sense. And so what I think is happening is some well-intentioned Christian, hundreds of years after Paul, has a, he's bothered by this missing letter to Laodicea, he or she, maybe... We don't know. Uh, and they say, I wonder what Paul would have written to Laodicea. I don't, I don't think they're trying to, like, deceive people with this forgery. I think they're just trying to, to imagine. Uh, and so we do have this later uh, book. Uh, have you, maybe you've never read uh, Laodiceans. Uh, so let's we'll read a couple verses here from Laodiceans. Uh, Paul, an apostle, not by men nor because of man, but because of Jesus Christ, my brothers, at Laodicea. Grace and the peace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I thank Christ by all my prayers that you are complete in him, persist in carrying out his works, and abide in the promise. Okay. You, you get the idea here. I'd like to actually read it all. Um, what it appears someone has done is it's hard to, to make up a, a letter uh, from someone else. Uh, Whatever you write, you're going to say, well, it doesn't really sound like Paul. Uh, it's hard to, to get into someone else's shoes like that. Uh, so what this person is, they've actually like just pu- 
pulled out little phrases from all of Paul's real letters and kind of mashed them up into this letter of just, it's a bunch of uh, Paul's uh, best hits uh, wedged into 20-something verses. Uh, I I like this, this quote I found. It's hard to imagine a more feebly constructed combination of Pauline phrases. Uh, so that's the, the verdict on this letter to Laodicea that we do have. It, it's just someone who uh, wanted to you know, mix up some, some Pauline phrases. Uh, so don't worry about the letter to Laodicea. Uh, I think we're going to be just fine uh, without that. We can, we can continue uh, just focusing on Ephesians and Colossians this morning. Let's start with uh, Colossians. Uh, like I said, Ephesians is a little bit uh, you know, less specific. Uh, it's not, you don't get these hints of problems in Ephesus or anything like that. Uh, whereas Colossians, we, get the, we try to read in between the lines to see what, what's going on in Colossae. Uh, the first thing we need to know is this guy, Epaphras. Uh, we, we mentioned him in Philemon, uh, and he's also mentioned in Colossae. Uh, so he is a Gentile. Uh, Colossians 4 doesn't actually say he's a Gentile, uh, but the way Paul lists his friends, he lists all his Jewish friends in one grouping, and he lists all the Gentile friends in a, in a separate group. Uh, and Epaphras is with that second group. Uh, so he's a Gentile. Uh, and it appears from the letter to Colossians that Epaphras is the one who actually started this church in his hometown. Uh, and now he finds himself in prison with Paul. Uh, so I, I don't know how he ended up in prison, uh, probably uh, for the same kind of things that Paul was doing, uh, and perhaps is, a, is also a Roman citizen uh, that saves him from uh, unjust punishment. Uh, so that's where uh, he and Paul are now you know, together in prison. Um, I like to think he's, he's been telling Paul these stories about uh, his hometown church. Uh, and Paul uh, has now written this letter uh, you know, based on what he's heard from his friend Epaphras. Uh, now, it doesn't appear uh, that Paul has uh, been to the church in Colossae. Uh, we, we see some, some hints here. You know, we've heard of your faith. Uh, We've been told of your love uh, since the day we heard about you. Like, it, it doesn't actually sound like he's got some strong personal connections here. And actually, by the time we get to chapter 2, uh, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Uh, so we have this letter from Paul to a church that he's not really been a part of. Uh, now, has he been to Colossae? Uh, this is a, a picture uh, from the, the third journey where Paul travels from Galatia to Ephesus. Uh, and on this map, they, they have him going through Colossae and Laodicea on his way to Ephesus. Uh, but actually, if you read Acts 18 19, it, there's no specifics uh, how exactly Paul traveled. Maybe he went up through Heropolis or something different. Uh, and maybe if he did travel through Colossae, maybe the church wasn't there yet, uh, that uh, Paul had, had just really met uh, these people in Ephesus, and he's, he travels back to Ephesus and, and bases there for the next uh, two-plus years. Uh, 
So perhaps during this time in Ephesus, he meets Epaphras, uh, and he sends Epaphras back to his hometown. And Epaphras starts that church uh, after Paul had made this little pass through the, the city. And at that time, there had been no group of Christians meeting there. You know, something like that maybe. Uh, so maybe he's been through the city, uh, but he still doesn't know uh, the Christians uh, who are in Colossae. All he knows is this Epaphras uh, that he's met. Once again, reading between the, the lines here, th- there's some sort of problem in Colossae just based on, on how Paul is responding. He doesn't exactly say what the issue is, um, but some, some hints here. Uh, so maybe some sort of, of legalistic teaching, uh, Colossians 2, 16, uh, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Uh, so Sabbath there kind of hints maybe this is a you know, Jewish uh, legalistic influence. Uh, maybe this more of a mysticism, this kind of philosophical uh, speculation. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Uh, you know, worship of angels is not something we really deal with today, uh, but it does seem to be something that was happening in the first century, especially among some kind of you know, offbeat uh, Jewish groups. Uh, you know, if you read the book of Hebrews, uh, he, there he's talking about Jesus and angels and how Jesus is better than angels, which would kind of fit with this idea that people have this, this reverence uh, for these spiritual beings and these angels. Uh, and the, the correction is, no, don't worship them. Jesus is better than them. Uh, so we see this as maybe something going on, once again, from Jewish, uh, not, not really you know, traditional Jew- Judaism, uh, but from these philosophical uh, Jewish groups. Uh, talking about angels and, and some sort of knowledge uh, that you can attain. Uh, also, this idea of asceticism. Uh, so, Colossians 2.20, 21. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the wor- this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Uh, and just a, a verse later, verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So some sort of uh, uh, food regulations would fit in here about this don't taste, Uh, once again, maybe Jewish idea, uh, but also this uh, physical uh, harshness this asceticism about uh, trying to, to follow these, these rules, uh, all kind of playing in here together. Uh, the other thing we kind of see here is that this idea that people are after some sort of wisdom uh, beyond just the message of Jesus. Uh, and this idea that people are, are looking around at these other uh, philosophies, these other ideas, and saying, you know, let's, let's kind of figure out what, what this uh, tells us as well. Uh, 
So you see this, this undercurrent in Paul's message about uh, Christ is all the knowledge, all the wisdom. Uh, so we'll just kind of run through a couple of these uh, verses that he mentions. Uh, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So here, right at the beginning of the book, he's kind of setting this out, I think, uh, as a theme, and then he's going to keep going through it as he goes. Uh, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding. I should have bolded that one too. In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So these people who are, who are out seeking for this secret uh, knowledge other places, uh, Paul's saying it's in Christ that this is all hidden, uh, not in these other uh, places you're looking uh, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. Uh, so once again, pointing uh, to the, the true source, uh, who is complete in himself, that you don't need all this other stuff uh, added on to it. Uh, the other thing he does here, at the very beginning of Colossians, he, he sets out what appears to be some sort of poem or a song. Uh, it has, has lots of poetic elements to it, and we'll just read through this together. Uh, talking about uh, the work of Jesus. Uh, so we'll read, read through it first, and then we'll kind of uh, break it down a little bit after that. So Colossians 1, 15 to 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay? So you can actually break this down. Uh, if you, you know, look at it closely. Uh, what I'd say, two verses, two stanzas. Uh, because each one repeats some of the same words and concepts as the other. So verse 1 is, is talking about Jesus and Jesus as the creator. Now, sometimes we get this idea that uh, you know, God the Father created, and then Jesus redeemed, and now the Spirit uh, lives in the church. It's, it's kind of a sequential idea. Uh, it's, I, I don't think that's the, the biblical picture at all, uh, is that uh, in the beginning, uh, the Father and Jesus and the Spirit are all involved in creation. Uh, and so Jesus, before he is born to Mary, is God's agent of creation. He is God creating. Uh, so Paul talks about he's the, the firstborn of all creation. He's going to reuse that word firstborn for verse 2 as well. Uh, in him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible. Uh, and he, he has this series of uh, prepositional phrases, uh, in him, through him, for him. So all things have been created through him and for him. All things hold together in him. Okay? Now notice as we get to the, the second part, verse 2, uh, you can tell he, he's, he's using those same descriptions to talk about a different role of Jesus. Now Jesus as the Redeemer. Uh, so before he was the firstborn of creation, now he's the firstborn from among the dead. Uh, that Jesus was raised from the dead, and now those who uh, follow him have that same hope for themselves, but he's the first uh, to be raised from the dead. Uh, and then we, we have, uh, through him, all things are reconciled for him. So repeating through him, for him, in heaven and on earth, just like before. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. So we have the same in him, through him, for him, all repeated. It should say verse 2. Sorry about that. Uh, this is verse 2, Jesus as the Redeemer. Uh, so a, a beautiful, uh, I don't know what, if it's a poem, if it's a song, uh, it's poetic, we can say that. Uh, he's, he's very intentionally using his language. And he's going to set this right at the beginning, uh, and it's going to kind of get repeated, these ideas, throughout the rest of the letter. Uh, we, we see this in other, uh, elsewhere in Paul as well. He, he starts off with this big theological idea uh, and starts to, to unpack it. And finally, by the end of the letter, he's talking about the, the, the practical implications of it for how we live. Uh, so this is, that's Paul's style. Start off with this big theological idea and then uh, work through it. Uh, I'll mention this too. Uh, Colossians is the place where, where Paul talks about uh, nailing the, the law to the cross, the, the, the law has been nailed to the cross. Uh, uh, and one of my, my little hobby horses here is to, to talk about, I don't know how, how Paul really feels about the law. Remember, he's arrested because he's going to the temple to prove that he is still uh, keeping the law as a Jew. That's, that's what gets him in trouble, uh, is the, the other Christians tell him, hey, you have this reputation of being kind of a bad Jew and you know, teach other people to be bad Jews, why don't you show them that you're actually a good Jew and go to the temple and make this, uh, this vow? And he, he agrees to do that. Uh, he gets arrested for it. Um, but we, we get this idea, and I think that's the same thing people hear, that, that Paul's really against the law. Uh, and he's got this freedom in Christ and you know, throw out the, the law and the circumcision and all that. Uh, and here we talk about Paul, you know, the law's been nailed to the cross, uh, Colossians 2, 13 and 40. But actually, I should have, shouldn't have showed you the verse before we got there. Uh, he, he doesn't actually say that the law is nailed to the cross. Uh, and, and lots of translations uh, struggle to, to translate different ways. Here's the NIV. Uh, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Okay, so he's, he nailed something to the cross, uh, this charge of our legal indebtedness. Uh, so, it's, you know, it's, it's not the law. Uh, what it, this appears to be is, this is the statement of debts. Uh, the law 
says, do these things, and uh, it's now, you know, someone else has written down, well, here's all the things you didn't do uh, to keep the law. Uh, and that, the statement of all the things that you didn't do, uh, that's what's, you know, holding you back. Uh, the law, there's no problem with the law. Uh, it's this statement of your debts. And Christ on the cross has, has uh, canceled those debts. Uh, so, once again, like I said, it's just my, my own little hobby horse. Uh, Paul is not against the law. Uh, and as, as a Jew, he's happy for Jews to continue keeping the law of Moses. Uh, and in some sense, uh, he sees God's law as uh, continuing uh, in the law of Christ. Uh, maybe not, not exactly as the Mosaic law, but th- these ideas are continuing. Uh, so he's not against the law. Uh, that's, that's my point there. And this verse doesn't say uh, he, uh, Christ nails the law to the cross. Uh, but that's just a little, little diversion. Sorry about that. Uh, it's, we're kind of going to start moving into Ephesians now uh, and talk about this, this idea of Christ and the powers. Uh, what, what I think uh, is interesting here is that when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's a very uh, zoomed-in picture of the death of Jesus. Uh, that they're very concerned with you know, the people and the events um, that it, it, it's Jesus of Nazareth and Pilate and Judas and Peter and all these specific people and all these you know, exact events that are happening when Jesus dies and is raised from the dead. But here in, in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul zooms out on this. Uh, so it's no longer just about Pilate and Judas as these bad guys, uh, but we actually see you know, looking at the, the entire cosmos, that this death of Jesus is this spiritual battle, and there are these powers of evil uh, fighting against God and his son. Uh, and so we see this, this language. He's really you know, pulling back the curtain to say what's really going on when Jesus is crucified uh, is this, this spiritual victory, this vi- victory in the spiritual realm uh, that has these huge implications. So starting in Colossians, uh, from, from this, this poem, uh, it talks about, uh, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Uh, so he is the, the origin, the, the, the creator of whatever powers there may be on earth. And notice this series, we'll, we'll see these same words come up in these other places. Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. Uh, and in Colossians 2, 9, uh, 9 and 10, uh, in, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And he explains a little bit more that uh, in his death, uh, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so you see, you know, this is the, the big picture view of the crucifixion, is Jesus is defeating 
these powers and authorities. We get into Ephesians. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So seeing this uh, crucifixion as this moment, uh, and actually I guess here the, the resurrection uh, is all pointing to, to Christ's victory over these powers. Uh, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work at, in those who are disobedient. Uh, that'd be an interesting one to, to get into more, but uh, not today. Uh, once again, this ruler language. Uh, and this here is familiar to us, that despite the fact that Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities, he's uh, triumphed over them, uh, there's still this struggle going on today uh, between Christ's followers and these powers. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, the same heavenly realms where Jesus is at the, the right hand of God. Uh, so it's not, uh, he, I think Paul is, is dealing with this idea that, you know, I thought Jesus defeated these powers, uh, and yet we're still struggling against them. Uh, he's recognizing there, there is uh, some uh, truth to that, that we still have to, to face these uh, powers and authorities. Now, let me ask me the question is, what, what does he mean by all this, this talk of things? Is, just, uh, is this uh, spiritual warfare? Uh, this is demons uh, and stuff like that. I think that's, that's part of it. Uh, some people want to say, well, this is, this is really you know, talking about these systems in our, our world, this you know, political systems. There's so much corruption in the, uh, the powers of the nations. Uh, we, we just see that the, when uh, these forces get together, they, they can cause so much evil in the world. Uh, so this is talking about, you know, about politics. This is you know, the... The, the powers of this world. Uh, and I say, well, maybe there's actually some truth to that too. I think we actually see that uh, these spiritual powers uh, are at work sometimes in the, the, the political powers. Uh, and we, we see this when nations you know, invade another nation and, and just cause such devastation. There's, there's a greater sense of, of evil going on there uh, and so I, I'm not going to point to this is all talking about uh, our systems. This is all talking about spirit. I think these are, are connected, and Paul is recognizing that. Uh, and that when we as Christians uh, talk about Jesus as our Lord, uh, we're recognizing him as the, the one who has defeated powers, whether that's uh, you know, political powers that we no longer have any allegiance to, it's the spiritual powers that we no longer have any allegiance to. Uh, so you see this, this, this uh, idea carried out throughout both of these books, uh, this, this hidden uh, battle going on behind the scenes uh, between the powers of evil and Jesus. 
Uh, well, let's, we've just got a couple minutes left. Let's kind of talk about these uh, passages about Christian households. Uh, so this is uh, from Ephesians 5, and we have a, a similar teaching in Colossians 3. And as I said, we, we, there's three pairs uh, of relationships that he talks about. Uh, husbands and wives, parents and children, and owners and slaves. Uh, now, you think about the, you know, the Roman... Uh, family at the time, uh, it, it's very centered on the man, uh, on the, the, the father, husband, owner. Uh, he's really the, the one who's in charge of all three of these relationships in the, the Roman home. Uh, the man's in charge of his wife, he's in charge of his children, he's in charge of his slaves. And here Paul comes in with this, uh, this reorientation for how the Christian home ought to look. And it's no longer centered on, on the man, uh, but now we, we actually center this on Jesus. Uh, and so when he talks about husbands and wives, he's, he says well, it's really about Christ and the church. Uh, and there's actually submission to each other. Uh, and there's love just as, though, uh, just as Christ loved the church. Uh, and same thing with uh, owners and slaves. Uh, we'll kind of jump to that one. Uh, he tells these slaves, you, know, you are actually a slave to Jesus. Uh, your true master is not this guy. Uh, it's actually Jesus. Uh, and so that, that's going to affect how you serve. Uh, if you think about you know, what I'm doing, I'm really doing for my true master, Jesus, not this lousy owner of mine. Uh, and so Paul, Paul is, is offering a, a, a radical uh, reorientation of the, the Christian home uh, for this time. Uh, we're uh, shifting away from, all, from everything going back to this one guy, but everything going towards Jesus. Uh, and perhaps we, we, we don't uh, get the full, uh, full grasp of that. We, we, we want to point to this, to our culture and say, well, this is, we still got uh, some things pointing for the guy. Uh, but I, I think for, for the people who hear this, uh, initially, this would be a shocking uh, reorientation uh, to their families. Uh, and he mentions you know, both in Ephesians and Colossians this similar message. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously, there's more we could talk about in, in both of these books. Uh, we've kind of just scratched the surface uh, but you know, this is not a, a class on, on Ephesians or Colossians. This is a class on Paul. So we gotta, uh, make, can't spend too much time on everything. Uh, next week, we, we have one more prison letter from this group of four prison letters. That's Philippians. And like I said, it's kind of the, the odd one from the rest. Uh, whereas these three were all addressed to uh, this area of Asia, modern-day Turkey, uh, Philippians is off in northern Greece, uh, probably sent you know, separately from the rest. So, so not so many similarities from these three letters that we've talked about so far. Uh, we can close with a prayer. We actually have uh, lots of beautiful prayers in these two books. Uh, I picked this one from Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, and we'll, we'll close with this this morning. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know 
the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. We'll say amen. Thank you for your attention. We'll, we'll see you next week as we, we get into the book of Philippians.